Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm excited to have another good friend and a true motorsports expert on the line with me here today, calling in from London, Mr. Jim Wright. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Hi, Marcus. Good to hear you, and uh, good to hear that you're well in these troubled times. Yeah, same here, same here. We, we exchanged some notes uh, before the call, and that's always the first thing I think everyone now asks, uh, you know, how are, how are people and, and how are they doing? So uh, that is most important in this, to, in this time for sure. Um, but before we get cracking, uh, I always love to get people a good chance, uh, the guests who are my guests here today. And, and you have a very illustrious career in motorsports in a general sense. And I'd love to give people a little more of a sense on that uh, before we then dig into, into this whole. Um, so you started your career uh, with Frank Williams in the Williams F1 team. Uh, you spent quite a few years with him, uh, eventually moving on to join Jared Berger uh, at the Toro Rosso team, and I do remember we were doing some work together at that time. Um, you were with Virgin as well, another famous written name, Richard Branson, of course. Uh, so, you know, the first sort of 17, 18 years of your career was very much in the world of Formula One, working with very high-profile uh, personalities and teams. Um, and since uh, that time, you now then ventured into Formula E with the uh, Venturi team, Mahindra team, and uh, now, most recently, with uh, Andretti Autosports, Auto uh, which is, of course, Michael Andretti's team, one of the most uh, recognized uh, open-wheel drivers in, uh, in, the, in America. And, of course, the team also owns uh, stakes in, uh, in an IndyCar series. They're also in Formula E. Uh, I believe also has a stake in, uh, in uh, Australian supercars. So truly a very broad uh, perspective there for you in the world of motorsports over those uh, you know 25 years here and so this is really what we we're talking about today uh, I want to explore the world of F1 where it is and, and the stories of course uh, from your past um, but also of course looking the same at F, F Formula E comparing the two and and learning and, and where are both of these series are heading right I mean both are on hold right now none of, none of the races are happening and maybe we start a bit there um, but uh, or or after the the short intro, but uh, so as a warm up here, give us a little bit of a of a sense. How did you get into this uh, crazy world of motorsports? Uh, you know, were you always a motorsports fan when you kid and grew up, or how did you get in it? Yeah, very much so, Marcus. Uh, my parents uh, lived about twenty minutes or twenty miles away, I should say, from Brands Hatch Circuit mm. in in Ken Kent in in, in England. Right. At that time, and, and uh, they tell me that I went to my first race when I was literally weeks old. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I, I certainly have memories from the age of five and and six, seven. I can remember certain races, standing at certain corners with my dad. Uh, wonderful times, awesome. and that was the spark for me. It, it really was, and it made me think that that's what I wanted to be involved in. And I think from about the age of 11, there was certainly a conscious decision that I was going to work in motorsport. Hmm. That's early. Yeah, it is early. And you don't realize that until you're at university and you know, all these guys around you, and they haven't got a clue what they want to do. <laughs> and that shocked me. Uh, right. I have to say that that really was a big surprise for me because I knew very clearly and I was on a mission, uh, and I wanted to achieve good things in motorsport. And uh, I, I would say also that during my teens, my parents moved to uh, a place in Shropshire in, in England, which was a real backwater. 
mm. and miles and miles from any racing tracks. Yeah. And there was a lack of ambition in the town that I lived in. People, a, a lot of people would, would never venture out of that, that county, that uh, prefecture. And that frightened me. Uh, I had so much ambition. So at the age of 18, I, I left. I went to university in, in Northampton. I got a business studies degree. Mm-hmm. And why Northampton? Because that was 14 miles from Silverstone. Okay. The epicenter of UK motorsport. Yes. So I started to, to go to races. I got myself a job as a journalist for the local newspaper, and, and that gave me free admission and the best seat in the house to watch awesome. every I race. I love it. I love it. And you learn, don't you? You just learn from watching. You learn from talking to people. And uh, what I first thought was going to be uh, a, a career option in, in designing racing cars it, I worked out quite quickly. I wasn't clever enough to do that scientifically, mathematically. That that wasn't in my sweet spot. <laughs> but the commercial side intrigued me, Marcus. I, and you know, I know you as a commercial person. You 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 get the commercial side, and and I could see that opening up. Mm. Remember that when I was only eight years old, it was Colin Chapman that did the first proper sponsorship in motor racing with the, the famous Goldleaf team lotus mm-hmm. so it was still pretty new but obviously beginning to take off and there was a chap called guy edwards you remember him he was a, a so-so racing driver okay but the best sponsorship finder uh, and i began to follow his career quite closely and, and understand more and more what he, he was trying to achieve right um but I, I think another serious breakthrough was in the school holidays or university holidays. And I got a job for March Engineering, which at the time was the biggest racing car production company in the world. Mm. And famously once made every car that started the Indianapolis 500. Right. Um, big, big organization headed by Adrian Reynard, uh, later at, at, at Reynard. But at March, Robin Hurd was the man who was leading it, and I got a job in my university time, and it was costing racing cars. So March mm-hmm. were producing cars from Formula One down to Formula Ford, and mm-hmm. I actually had no idea how much it was costing them to make these cars. Wow. So it was kind of finger in the air, this seems a reasonable amount of money to charge people. Uh-huh. And away they went. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> right. Uh, that's, that's an, yeah. Every nut, every bolt. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. So, so you and, got really you know, deep into understanding the, the cost and the whole, uh, you know, what it takes to build one of these things, I guess, right, in that, during that apprenticeship time. Spot on. You right. know, you don't realize it at the time, but what a grounding. Hmm. And it also led me to deal with mechanics, machinists, People who aren't at the forefront of racing, but are there day in, day out, striving, working very, very hard to produce these remarkable machines. And you had to you know, get into their confidence. And here was I, a spotty 18-year-old, and arriving on a, a moped every day from, from uh, Northampton. But they gave me their time, eventually, and they gave me their trust. And I was able to produce a work which, which 
Robin Hood and the rest of March Engineering were very pleased with in the end, and it, and it helped them obviously to cost their cars properly. Yeah, I love that, and, and it, it just reminds me so much of the story uh, David Falk was telling me um, how he got into the industry, where similar, almost similar, just in a very different way, that he was tasked to uh, to do the research for all the contracts uh, which his company had with athletes at that time, you know, Donald Dell's company, uh, ProSurf, and so he said. I had to read every single contract, but like you know what you were saying, you had to cost out every single nuts and bolt there. And even though maybe at that time it doesn't sound like a great job, um, but it obviously set you up for you know the career you've been in now for the last 25 years, similar to David. So I, I love these stories because I think for our young listeners here, you know, people who are maybe trying to get into the industry, it isn't always the the obvious path. Um, you know, there is many ways to get in there, and I think that's just another great way. So how do you then end up with uh, with your first team there, working with Willie? and Frank Williams maybe you know add a little bit to that uh, and then we keep going from there um, and that took some time so you know the job with March was 1978 um, 79 mm -hmm. and I ended up working for Frank Williams in 1994 wow okay but yeah. in, in in the meantime in, in, in that gap there was a huge amount of learning and I started to work in the national racing scene, doing lots of things, Marcus, uh, some driver management, some sponsorship finding, uh, public relations, and then working for Reynard Racing Cars and, and understanding international racing. I brought in a really big sponsor into Japan for Reynard. Uh, mm -hmm. Reynard were up against some formidable competition in Japan. And they didn't have a, a works team. They were reliant upon customers coming along and racing their cars. And this was putting them at a disadvantage. So I managed to find a big sponsor for them in Japan. And uh, it's a funny story to that because we're in the middle of a Gulf War. And right. this must have been the winter of 1991. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting on what in those days was a fax Uh, communication yep. <laughs> and to come in from Japan with a signature on it in, in, obviously in Japanese um, which would be a, a multi-million pounds uh, a multi-million dollar contract which would mm -hmm. signal the start of a, a factory Reynard team in Japan Right. and I was there at two o'clock in the morning waiting for this fax to come in listening to what was happening with the Gulf War, frightened that obviously this was going to mushroom and, and, and perhaps spell the end of, uh, uh, of this contract and motorsport and other things. And it, the fax machine buzzed into life and in came the fax and, and away we went. Um, and that, that was my first international sponsorship breakthrough. It was a big, big deal. Hmm. It put me in very good step with Reynard and uh, yeah, we completed what, what we set out to do. And I think That also helped because I was then able to go to Formula One teams and, and talk about what I could do internationally as well as nationally. Mm. So that was a breakthrough for me in my career, Marcus, a really big breakthrough. Yeah, But uh, then getting uh, awesome. In, Please keep going. I was going to say, getting into Williams was quite interesting. I kind of flirted with Formula One teams, trying to get into them. Uh, no one was willing to take a chance because I hadn't previously worked in Formula One. Mm. And then one day I'm on a train coming into or across London, and 
in the same carriage as me is Jackie Oliver, who at the time was uh, team principal and owner of the Arrows Formula One team. Wow. And we kind of known each other a little bit from before, and we, you know, reintroduced ourselves, started talking, and asked me what I was up to. Told him about what I was doing in Japan, but said that my ambitions are for Formula One. And he said, "Well, why don't you come and work for me?" So I thought about it, but Arrows were a bit of an up and down team, and had some reservations. So I called a guy called Richard West at uh, Williams. Mm-hmm. He was the uh, marketing director, and he said, uh, "Well, why don't you come and work for me instead of working for for Jackie Oliver at Arrows?" And that's how it happened. Um, right. So this was 1994. There was delay to that because of the tragic death of Ayrton Senna in May, and obviously Williams's focus was elsewhere. But in uh, September, it was all sorted out, and I started work in October. And within 10 days, I'd done my first sponsorship deal for Williams through my Japanese contact that got me the deal uh, for Reynard. And we did a deal with a company called uh, Tokyo Ueno Clinic. And if you look (laughs) at arguably Damon Hill's best ever drive, 1994, Suzuka in the teeming rain where he beat Michael Schumacher in a fair and square battle. Damon has his arms aloft on, on the uh, podium and clear on his arms is Tokyo Ueno Clinic. Well, and that go. was my first deal for William. I love yeah. it. I love it. And, and can you reveal, just to give a sense, of what was the size of that deal? Um, how, how much did, that, did they spend with you guys? It was £110,000 for right. a one-race deal, uh, which was good, good money in those days. Yeah. Um, and, of course, everyone was happy. Yeah. But I think from my point of view, uh, it, it sealed my uh, position at Williams. Frank um, took taken the chance on me, and yeah. you know, within a couple of weeks, I'd repaid him. Yeah, you paid and for yourself, and that's what a yeah, salesman should be doing. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah. t- I mean, uh, I want to keep a little bit on uh, uh, with Williams because you spent obviously a, a significant amount of time there, and obviously you work with Sir Frank William, uh, which is a you know a huge character in the in the world of motorsports. T- tell us a bit about it, you know, working with it with his team, and you know the team of, again had obviously its his big moments where they were doing very well, and then uh, over the years, of course, has also had challenges. Uh, yeah, just maybe give us a bit of background on that. Fantastic times, Marcus. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed those 12 years working with Frank and a number of incidents but I recall being there for only three weeks and Frank invited me to have lunch with him and he said I've got a a guest with me and I just want you to talk about developing sponsorship and and, and how you would go about it okay guest turned out to be Wayne Wayne Rainey who'd been uh, involved in the terrible crash and had been um, uh, disabled just as Frank had mm-hmm. so I sat at the table three weeks into my Williams career with these two icons of their respective motorsport categories mm. and I'm talking to them both about how I go about sponsorship and, and, and building a commercial team And it turned out that Wayne had been pretty suicidal after his accident. And Frank had flown over to America, uh, to the States in his private plane and talked to him and talked to him about not feeling sorry for himself 
and getting up and running a racing team. He couldn't ride anymore, but he could manage a team. Right. And uh, that was never, ever publicized. But what a moment, three weeks into your career, to have these two icons in front of you asking you for the, your advice on sponsorship and, and building a, a marketing team. So that, that was a, a huge moment. Um, and it set the tone for the relationship with Frank. This is a guy who I've never been in, in any organization where a person is revered. So Frank Williams and Patrick Head were revered mm. in, in, in Williams. If you can think of 500 strong group of people all having this huge admiration for Frank and Patrick. Mm. And that meant that people would walk through walls for those two. Right. And that was why Williams was so successful. Yeah. What was the highlight, or your personal highlight? Was it, and whether it's linked to maybe the biggest sponsorship deal you did, or, or maybe how, of course, the success of the team? What, what would be? How would you describe it during that during the William era? Well, I think the biggest challenge was to put together the BMW deal with Williams. Mm -hmm. And again, there's quite an interesting story behind this because. The original deal was done in 1997, and it was done by the then BMW Motorsport, or BMW chairman, I should say, uh, Bernd Pischerschrieder. Again, funny story behind this. Uh, he was visiting our factory, all cloak and dagger stuff, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, we were under contract with Renault at the time, racing with Renault and doing well, winning world championships. Mm. But Frank knew that Renault were starting to be involved with Flavio Briatore, and he didn't like that. He wanted his own OEM manufacturer relationship. Mm -hmm. So Bert Pichetrida comes along one day, and of course he's, in the UK, he's not particularly well known. Other than the fact that the day before, he'd been driving a McLaren road car, crashed it into a lamppost at high speed, <laughs> and then was on the front page of the Sun newspaper, Actually, you know what? I so, remember that. <laughs> yeah. I remember so reading about is, it. That's the day before he came to Williams. And, of course, okay. no one really, within Williams, there were probably five people that knew Bert Pichetrider was coming. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, Frank, myself, two other guys. Yeah. And I was taking him around the factory um, before he, he, he went into talks with, with Frank and Patrick. And... Of course, at the end of that, uh, I thought, great, I've shown him around, no one knows who he was, fantastic. And then I'm on the shop floor later on that day, and one of the guys in the machine shop says, oh, so we're going with BMW next, are we? I said, what do you mean? And he shows me the front page of a Sun newspaper, and there's this picture of Pichus Reader climbing sheepishly out of a very bent McLaren road car. <laughs> so that was that cover bloke. But interestingly, Pichichrida was uh, removed from BMW before the we started racing with them. Mm. And so a new chairman came in, Joachim Milberg, and he appointed Gerhard Berger and uh, Mario Tyson to take mm -hmm. over the motorsport program. Right. And they had very, very different views on how a relationship with, between BMW and Williams should work. So effectively, Frank was faced with the possibility of, of either tearing up the existing contract 
and keeping a partner happy or saying, no, that's the contract signed by your chairman, get on with it. Mm-hmm. He chose performer. And, and, you know, that was another lesson learned. Um, there are very few OEMs are going to put money into motor motorsport, develop racing engines and put, put cash in, in. So he rightly chose to listen to his partner and we literally ripped up a contract and we started again. But that posed an enormous commercial challenge because BMW wanted to take over the commercial rights of the Williams team and Frank and Patrick didn't want that. They thought that would signal the end of Williams' team if they let them have the commercial control. Mm. So here was the problem. Uh, BMW wanted commercial control. Williams didn't want to cede those rights. So I was tasked with finding a resolution, and we found that. Um, It took me six, seven options to get there, but eventually we came up with option 6B, I think it was, (laughs) and that was to sell BMW the team title rights and the look and feel of the team. Right. So effectively, BMW would control how everything looked and that they then came up with the iconic dark blue and white livery of mm-hmm. the team right. and then we had to sell the sponsorship with the constraints that every logo had to be blue out of white or white out of blue right okay but that got us to where we wanted to be um and it also gave us another problem because bmw made it very clear they didn't want tobacco sponsorship so this was 1999. Right. Uh, tobacco beginning to become a, you know, a problem yeah. for uh, socially and, and, and politically. Yeah, yeah. And BMW said no tobacco. Right. Now at the time we had Rothman sponsorship. We had overtures from Philip Morris and from R.J. Reynolds, and that was a hugely brave decision by Frank hmm. to turn that away. And was it Hewlett Packard was one of the, the big ones which were on, ended up on your car? Compact. And then oh, compact, that morphed right. into Hewlett Packard when uh, Compact got taken over. Right, okay. So and it wasn't that's really wrong. another interesting story. It was now December 1999. And we were due to race, due to launch with BMW in January uh, 2000. Hmm. And we had a pretty blank car. And we got a fax on December the 28th from Compaq, who we've been in negotiations with for months, saying that they're very disappointed but their red could not be shown on the car. Um, but they had contemplated pulling out completely, but they felt there was still merit. Could we talk? Well, the door was opened and we concluded the deal with Compaq and, and that changed into HP, as you rightly said, in 2002. And then we built from there, Marcus, and we built a very good portfolio of, of companies. Awesome. And, and I, will, I will come back to it. I definitely want to dig a bit deeper because you are truly on the commercial front of it. You've always been, uh, even though, you, of course, uh, you had maybe broader responsibility in certain organizations as well now. Uh, but you are what I always call, you are the front end of the stick, right? I mean, we're the guys who have to go find the money and, and we've got to figure out how to – Be, play with all the egos and, and, and deal with you know both sides of the coin you know to make it work and, and that is a hard job trust me I've obviously I've been doing that as well for 25 years 
So I give you all the respect there is. Um, now, a couple of, you know, just thoughts coming to my mind uh, listening to you. Number one is, give me a sense and scale of your vo the volume of contracts you've signed. I'm sure we've done hundreds of millions of dollars, but I don't know if you've ever done a proper math. You have? A, is there a number out there, just for fun? I, I've never done the math. Yeah, you, you will be talking hundreds of, of millions of, of dollars. Um, small fry compared with some of your previous guests talking in terms of billions of dollars in, in terms of the, the, their deals. But in motor racing terms, quite significant deals. Absolutely. But what I'm proud of most, Marcus, is, is not that, but that I also did the little deals. Um, let me explain. You know, every Formula One team has uh, requirements to spend quite a lot of money on paint or on wheels or on other stuff, which is Every every year you need it. You know you need trucks and things like that. Yeah. What Frank was very good at doing because of his upbringing and, and the way he struggled from early days, he was very good at making sure we kept focus on the small areas as well. Mm. So, in each year you could have two two and a half million, three million pounds of of costs, which you could offset by doing sponsorship deals. Right. And I was the only one who. Frank trusted uh, to do the small deals and, and the big deals. Right. And he, he once said to me, he said, what I like about you, Jimmy, is that you, 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 you have an eye on the small stuff as well as the headline stuff. And that, I'm proud of that, um, mm. because those deals uh, are every bit as important, and they take a lot of time and effort to do as for bigger deals. Correct. Um, yep. But yeah, the volumes of deals were, were, were big. Obviously, in the BMW era, we probably had a sponsorship portfolio of, of getting on for uh, $100 million uh, a, a season. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we had those were signed up for three, five years, uh, uh, you know, contract length. So it was, yeah. was, was very good. Uh, they were good times. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, before we move on a little bit here, um, you've dealt with so many interesting personalities uh, over your career there. Uh, as I said, whether it's the, the owners of these teams, which are some of them are former you know, race drivers himself, uh, or of course, someone like Richard Branson. Uh, you, know, you know, who is the most interesting of all the characters um, you've, you've dealt with in the F1 world before we start talking a bit about uh, Formula E as well here? I think in, in Formula One, as you say, I was lucky to meet a lot of characters. Um, at that time, you had people like Flavio Briatore, uh, Ron Dennis, uh, Jean Todd. Yeah. Jean Todd, I still have dealings with now uh, through Formula E. Sure. Briatore was this huge character. Yeah, but, Mr. Benetton. Huh? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but he was a very polite guy, you know. Some Formula One team owners would just come into the motorhome and say, Frank, like this, and meaning, please, will you go and get him? Others would say, would you mind seeing if Frank's available? I need to speak to him about something. That tells you a lot. Right. Though That tells me an awful lot about those people, how they deal with personnel, how they deal with people from other teams. And uh, Frank taught me a, a lot in his mannerisms, the way he, he, he did business. And I also learned from other people in the paddock how I would not want to be. So I think that was a big learning for me, Marcus, to be honest with you. Yeah. 
Mm, um, example. Yeah, Richard Branson, he was an interesting one because he didn't really have a passion for Formula One at all. Um, okay. Had been brought into it uh, because it was a free deal for him. Um, and indeed, he was getting money for, for the license, putting the Virgin name in there. Clever guy. Um, and when you brought him in front of people uh, to talk about commercial deals, he could be very good, but you had to keep it short. His attention spans are very, very short. <laughs> and I'm talking anything more than 20 minutes completely lost. <laughs> okay. So that, that, that was a lesson. But very willing to help on the commercial side. Uh, he would write letters which we would draft uh, on his own Necker Island uh, headed paper. Letterhead. Sent to people. <laughs> right. And that was powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine. Uh, and and I'm, at the end of the day, I think, uh, and we'll talk a bit about it later now, um, you know, Formula One is really about B2B, right? It is really those, that relationship business, which uh, which is so important. It isn't just the branding on the car, which, you know, in a, during the race, you don't see much of it anyway, at least that's my opinion always. <laughs> um, you know, you know, talk a bit about, you know, the, the B2B world in Formula One and how that really is leveraged, uh, these relationships you build in the paddle club, et cetera. Yeah, for me, B2B is the uh, foundation for, for sports sponsorship. I firmly believe, particularly in this day and age, that sports sponsorship should be focused on building relationships between companies um, and where sponsorship becomes the focal point for that or the entry point. And I think if you look behind a lot of the sponsorships now in, in Formula One and Formula E, increasingly there are big deals behind it. Patronus and Mercedes is, is well documented that yep. this came about because of uh, Mobile's inability to fulfill uh, contracts for Mercedes in Asia. Mm. And Patronus stepped forward to take over these business-to-business -business relationships in, yeah, in the Asia. The lubricant part of it, correct. Yeah, and, and lubricants uh, obviously across commercial vehicles for Mercedes was huge, huge yes, business. Absolutely. The, the point is of business-to-business, you're going to buy, your procurement department is going to buy whatever you're buying, whether it's oil, whether it's semiconductors or whatever. They've got to buy it from somewhere. Yep. These companies uh, bidding for those contracts quite often have very little in between them in terms of pricing, in terms of servicing, etc. But if one company is willing to say, we'll put money into your motorsport program in return for which you give us access, that, that's very powerful. And in, in these days, it's not so much a promise of business, but it, it is getting them into... Um, quotations, getting them into uh, bidding uh, or tenders so that they have a chance, a significant chance to bid for the business. And mm. if you can do that and the doors open, then there are big rewards, really big rewards, which w far outweigh any sponsorship fees. Yeah, you know, and I agree. And I, and I think that's how, even when we've been involved in F1, it's always been 
the focus is on the B2B part, which, interestingly enough, I think at the beginning of conversations, actually people don't really realize that. I think they always think it's it's the branding, right? Uh, you know, being how great is it to be on a Formula One team or on a car? Uh, but there's, there's so much more to it. And I do remember we've had plenty of these conversations over the years, um, you know, and I've definitely learned a few tricks there from you there. Um, now, keeping a bit of tech of time here as well, uh, I'd love to sort of dive a bit into the Formula E world now. Um, you know, after almost 18 years in, in the F1 world, um, you did make that switch, um, which, of course, you, you know, you can, we can all debate and argue it could be the future, uh, you know, if one isn't going anywhere right now. Um, uh, but Formula E, of course, is that amazing new product out there. Um, tell me first a bit about, you know, how was this for you uh, on a personal level, switching from, you know, one series to another? And then uh, let's talk a bit about, you know, your, your, your last sort of seven, eight years in it. Yeah, I got a little bit disillusioned with Formula One, Marcus, to be honest with you. When I was working with uh, Virgin team, I brought in a sponsor, FX Pro, for 3 million euros. Mm -hmm. And I was really pleased with that deal. And then at the board meeting, uh, there was a sudden realization that that would last us about um, a week and a half or two weeks maximum. <laughs> and you just think, that's crazy. You know, that is absolutely crazy. Uh, the costs of Formula One are out of control. I'm not happy with this. I, I, I'm finding it increasingly hard to sell. Mm. So I came out of Formula One, and that coincided uh, within 12 months with a phone call from Lucas Degrassi, who I'd worked with at Virgin and who was good friends of the Spanish businessman entrepreneur Alejandro Agag. Mm -hmm. And Alejandro had sat down with Jean Todd, then now president of the FIA, yes. and had put together a vision for electric racing. Right. And that had been based on a conversation that Todd had had. He'd had a phone call from the head of the European Commission asking him what motorsport was going to be doing to help sell electric vehicles. Right. So this came about um, in 2013. And then uh, Keki Rosberg called me and said a friend of his, uh, Gildo Palanca Pastor, who's a uh, Monaco-based entrepreneur, yeah. right. was starting a Formula E team. And could I go and help him? Right. So I met with Gildo on January the 2nd, 2014, and I started work for him on January the 3rd. <laughs> and his partner was a certain Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, here we go. And yeah, and DiCaprio is, is a keen respecter of, of the planet and has, has spoken many, many times yes, about uh, sustainability. Yep. So he was an obvious fit. And the idea was that uh, DiCaprio's management team would have a long list of companies with which Leo was doing endorsements or approached Leo. And they would then work with me. My job would be to package those and turn them into sponsorships. Right. All very straightforward. Um, unfortunately, uh, uh, Gildo got a, had a stroke in uh, January and, and then uh, in a script that DiCaprio would be proud of was then um, his mother was murdered um, oh in, outside a hospital in Nice whilst she was visiting him. 
Oh my God! Um, it's all been well documented. Go and look it up, uh, Helen Pastor. But it meant that DiCaprio, uh, with Gildo out of action and, and these headlines in France, got got pretty cold feet and, and reversed out of it. But I did have a conversation with him uh, once personally, and uh, that was quite a uh, an episode, as you can imagine. But he was very clear in his thinking and, and very clear about what he wanted to do with Formula E, and and, and he felt that Formula E was the right kind of message to be getting people aware of the pollution of, of ice cars and making sure that electric cars could be seen as sexy, interesting, cool, and overcome the, the barriers to entry. And that, mm. that was his vision, and, and that was absolutely uh, spot on. Yeah, interesting. So I, yeah, and Alejandro Agag got the timing absolutely perfect, but Jean Todd and he needs more credit for this, had the vision to keep this as very cost-controlled from day one. Mm-hmm. I think, like me, seeing all the problems in Formula One with costs getting out of hand. So every decision we've ever made in Formula E is around cost. Right, which is part of the so problem important. in F1 has, for sure. I mean, and we just read about it the other day again that obviously they had another round of conversations on that. So, uh, so you're saying basically Formula E is very cost-conscious, besides obviously being conscious of being a a, a clean uh, a clean racing form, right? Yes, and, and it's been that way from day one. And I think for a number of us who are ex-Formula One, who are now involved in Formula E, who have been able to make sure that we carry the learnings from Formula One into Formula E right. and, and not go do, down some of the blind alleys and, and particularly in terms of, of, of spending money yeah. that uh, Formula One has, has fallen into. Give me a quick sense on the budget. So, uh, you know, F1 budgets, of course, now the latest they were talking about was 150 million. But, they, you know, you remember budgets into three, four hundred million uh, in the old days. Uh, uh, I don't know where, what the average is now in Formula One. But, uh, you know, what is the average compared, let's say, to a Formula E team? What, what is the minimum or maximum the, the teams there have? Well, in 2019, some of the top Formula One teams were still spending uh, three to four hundred million uh, right. euros. Right, right. Um, uh, you know, if you're, if you're making the powertrain as well, um, scratching around at the back, uh, like Williams, uh, they were spending about 130 million euros. Right. Uh, so still huge amounts of money. Yes. And the talk at the moment is to bring in a cost cap of 150 million dollars. Right. Uh, but there are still some exemptions to that, some driver salaries, etc. So still huge amounts of money. Yes. We are operating a global championship in Formula E for less than $20 million. Per so team. that's the difference. Right. Per wow. team. You, uh, yeah, that's a huge difference. That's Absolutely. a huge difference. Yeah. Now, you know, we don't have the following, obviously, but, but Formula One has. But um, we are on course to reach between 400, well, let's assume the season finishes with, with, with the right number of races etc we should be somewhere around 480 to 500 million viewers worldwide mm. uh, which is, is pretty respectable for Formula E absolutely um, and I've been to I've been to both I mean I, I've been obviously to plenty of F1 races uh, around the world but uh, I've been to several Formula E races my last one actually was in Hong Kong last year um, so yeah. I you know it's interesting uh, and I <clears throat> I'm still struggle. I have to admit, I, I love the cars. I mean, they they look amazing. Um, 
you know, the obvious what everyone says is I, I'm still struggling with the sound <laughs> that there is yes. nothing basically. Um, you know, the driving is great. In, you know, on the streets of Hong Kong is amazing, um, and obviously you do use other street circuits as well. Uh, what's your thought on that? You know, I mean, can't you not know, make these things sound better? Or you know, what is the whole concept? You know, what, how do you how do you add some of that maybe that 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 amazing sound which F1 is obviously all about? You know, even they remember the, the the year when they throttled down the the noise and everyone was complaining that it didn't sound like an F1 car anymore. How do you yeah. how do you bring how do you bridge that? I mean, you know, what's your thought well, on that? First, I think it's a different world these days, Marcus, and I think that uh, noise pollution, and uh, as well as any other form of pollution, is, is becoming uh, socially unacceptable. Fair um, but secondly, interestingly, there's some legislation coming in which will compel electric vehicle manufacturers to have some kind of noise with the car because of accidents whereby mm. people have not heard yeah. uh, the car <laughs> that's approaching. Right. So that's coming, and one of the things we're looking at at Formula E is to give each one of those cars a distinctive sound. Oh, right. So you could tell a BMW from a Mahindra or a Mercedes or whatever. Wow. Um, so that's going to come in, and that, that will be sooner rather than later. And, and that, I think, will we'll help with that. Now, I don't know what kind of sound that's going to be. It's not going to be a musical ditty, that's for sure, but it, it will be some kind of recognizable sound where people will be able to say, that's for BMW or, or, or that's okay. for Mercedes or whatever. Like um, so interesting question, um, but I, I think that's coming and it's, it's being driven by legislation. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, again, when you uh, let's go back to your world of, of co the commercial world sponsorship. Um, and not, not much talk about the, the scale and size. Clearly, F1 is bigger, the deals are larger, etc. What is what is becoming, if you compare the, the, the difficulty of selling, right? Um, is the story of we're clean, we're electric, we're all this other stuff. Is it a story people now really getting there and therefore the doors are opening as much as in the in the heady days of Formula One? Or do you still see a little bit, see people still don't get it and, and clearly Formula One is still not as well known, right? What, what's the sort of your take on that? No. I think people are getting it. Um, you pick up any investor relations uh, booklet, and I guarantee you the opening page uh, from the chairman is about sustainability, Absolutely. about cutting CO2 emissions, etc., etc. Yep. So immediately with your first piece of research, you know you're on the right lines. Absolutely. And I think it's difficult to, to argue against that. Um, Where I think Formula E is beginning to, to really uh, resonate is that people like the mix of new technology, but with um, a sustainability story. And the fact that we can deliver these into urban areas um, is very, very compelling. Mm -hmm. And you've got these fantastic backdrops. You know, Manhattan, when we were racing in New York, you mentioned yeah. Hong Kong with the fantastic Ferris wheel down by the, the pier. Yeah, correct. Uh, you know, they're just very iconic landscapes which resonate with people. Um, so I think to answer your question, when you knock on the door, you do get an audience. It's still obviously difficult to sell sponsorship. And, and you know, in these days, and, and we're going to talk about post-COVID-19 soon, It will be difficult, there's no doubt about it. But you've got a story there which is compelling and difficult for people to argue against. So I think that in itself is, is, is a very good start. 
Yeah, great. No, no, and and it makes complete sense, and I and I you know, I think I can see that. I, I'd love to talk a bit about Andretti Autosports. Um, you know, it's a great company, of course. Uh, Races, racing all over the world, you know, from the Indy, Indy Car Series in the U.S. to, of course, Formula E, and mentioned earlier, even all the way to Australia. So, talk a bit. Tell me a bit about your your role there, and how do you play across that whole, you know, playground, uh, and and, uh, and how this works for you. Well, I got to know the Andretti guys and Michael Andretti in particular uh, through the Formula E uh, Teams Association, which which I head up, and. Um, Michael, you know, is a racer, uh, just like Frank Williams in, in that respect. Michael was a was a fantastic driver himself, turned Absolutely. to team management at the end of his career and has, has, has gone on to win Indianapolis five times for 500. Mm-hmm. Incredible guy. And, of course, the Andretti name and, and, and brand in, in, in the States is, is huge. Correct. But like uh, a lot of motorsport businesses, they are susceptible to a sponsorship deal going wrong or in the lower categories where drivers are still bringing the money for indie lights drives or whatever mm. if a father doesn't pay or you know driver hurts himself or something that can mean a downturn in in uh income and, and that can obviously affect the business so my approach to michael was to say look i think you need to flatten out that curve get more income streams uh, going for for the team other than sponsorship and and drivers bringing money. So we talked about developing sponsorship, uh, on from sponsorship, merchandising and licensing Mm -hmm. to create a revenue stream there. And and that program is now underway. And Michael's daughter, Marissa, is is heading that up and doing a very good job with it. Uh, She heads up brand for Andretti. And my next project is, is trying to build Andretti Technologies um, so much as you've seen Williams and McLaren yeah. develop advanced engineering businesses using the uh, intellectual property processes, engineering technology from racing at a, in Formula One, mm-hmm. they've turned those into real-world applications. Right. Um, McLaren have done some great stuff in the medical science area. Williams uh, had a lovely story last year where they, they created fantastic efficiency for freezers in WH Smith by uh, applying aerofoil technology to the back of the freezers to, to maintain the, the cooling. Wow. So this is the stuff which which uh, fascinates me, but, but yeah. Formula One and other f- kinds of motorsport can deliver for real-world solutions. Absolutely. And we, we, we know in a the moment there's a lot of motorsport teams working very hard on COVID-19 projects, uh, ventilators or uh, other breathing uh, apparatus, etc. And Andretti wants to develop Andretti technologies in the States uh, using all of the decades of, of uh, technology that they've built up, particularly around the Formula E car as well with electric powertrains. Um, mm. you know, an electric powertrain in a racing car translates into an electric powertrain in a drone, for example. Um, and, and, you know, there are lots of other real-world uh, applications. So I, I, I'm busy at the moment raising funding for Andretti Technologies to expand. Uh, it's a company that's been going for five years. It's profitable, but we want to to take it up to the next level and and basically repeat the Williams Advanced Engineering and McLaren Applied Tech models. Good. I, I, yeah, I love that, and, and it makes total sense uh, knowing what I know about these other, the other 
uh, entities and how they make money there, which is beyond yes, your traditional revenue streams from in Formula One. Um, Quick thought here, uh, and I remember we actually had that conversation last time about uh, esports, right? Um, and again, motorsports and esports, uh, you know, you have lots of these uh, simulator races there, and right now that's the big thing anyway, right? Uh, with yeah. one holding a race recently. Um, have you guys gone any further in it yet, or are you still kind of sniffing around how to enter it? Uh, Andretti has looked at esports. Um, we haven't made an entry yet. Uh, I think it's quite a confusing marketplace, um, and there seems to be lots of experts, but but will tell you different things, different uh, ways to approach it. Hmm. I don't think we found a way which is right for Andretti yet. We would like to to be involved at some stage, um, but we haven't found that entry point uh, that suits us at the moment. But, Work in progress, Marcus. Uh, well, good. we'll keep talking about it. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Now um, th that's great, and I, and I think we got a really nice, good view into into the the amazing world of both Formula One and and, and Formula E here. Uh, you know, one question, and then we'll go talk a bit about the the, the post virus here uh, sponsorship world. Um, I'm sure, and this is you know, I might probably know the answer to my question, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, You know how important is winning um, in in the sales of sponsorship versus you know just being there with a with a strong team or, or say you know with a strong story right because every team has a story right whether it's the the personalities behind it or of course um, you know just being part of these uh, famous series uh, but winning of course makes a difference too so uh, how do you have seen it because you you've not always been in the winning teams you you know work for teams as well who were you know more middle or the back of it. Uh, what's the difference there for you uh, in, in terms of working in that space? I think you're right, Marcus. It does make a difference. Um, if you have a team with a winning heritage, uh, then it, it, it makes a big difference when you're knocking on the doors. But having said that, uh, I still think that the business-to-business -business platform is the single most important thing. Um, and I've, I've come off the back of a couple of years working for the Mahindra team, which obviously had no motorsport heritage at all um, but under Dilbag Gill's leadership the team has was transformed into a, a winning team and has some, mm. had some success right. but we weren't selling sponsorship for Mahindra based on success it was based on the business to business proposition that the Mahindra group could, could put before Absolutely. partners right. so I think to answer your question it certainly helps But you can still do deals if you've got a sound proposition. Right. Yeah. And Mahindra Indra, of course, is a huge group in India, uh, you know, in the automobile space and many other industries. Uh, yes. And therefore, building a, building a model around it um, where, you know, it's not just about being on the car again, but uh, being part of the group and part of the, the family as a whole. Uh, again, I think that's a great learning also for others, you know, whether you're in football or whatever. It's really about not just what the team does on the pitch, but, uh, you know, what, what you, how you build the, the, how you build the story, right? You know, I, th you know we all, I think in sales, we all storytellers, right? We're all, that's how we sell, right? Would you agree with that? Very much so. Mahindra's story is fascinating because, as you say, it's a sort of $22 billion conglomerate uh, ranging right. from automotive where they're making just under a million cars a year. They're the biggest tractor maker in, in, in the world. 
Um, but they've also got a $4 billion IT outsourcing company, for example. Yep. So, you know, you could frame a proposition to almost any company with some kind of touch point for Mahindra. Yep. And, and that was, was very interesting. And the chairman, Anand Mahindra, uh, was full square behind the racing program. Mm. And what a clever guy this, is, this guy Absolutely. is. He's, whoa. Uh, he, he's one of the most you talked earlier you asked me who, who are the most impressive people you, you've met in your career he would be in my top three he Absolutely. really would be yes uh, I've met him before as well and I do follow him also on social media and he is really smart and I like what he says and, and the way he, he comes across incredible guy um, obviously I wouldn't know him as well as you but uh, yeah I would, would agree with that um, really interesting. Very smart, a very nice guy as well, Marcus. You know, yeah. you, you can't wish to meet a nicer guy and super professional. Very yeah, good. Yeah, that's how exactly how he comes across. So. Awesome. Um, now let's uh, sort of go into wrapping it up a bit here. Um, you know what we call the cool down phase. Um, you know, we are in we're all in lockdown. You in London here? I'm in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, you know, but we all, you know, as usual, can't wait for the cars to go back out there uh, in whatever track it is. Uh, sure. How do you position it right now? Uh, what do you do uh, right now with you know sponsorship conversation? I, I'll give you quickly what we're doing, but uh, uh, love to hear that. Um, you know how you get ready. Uh, what we're basically doing right now, in the simplest sense, is we're just staying in touch. Right? There is no hard pitch. There's no hard selling. It really is just you know checking in with the customers and the clients. Um, making sure they're okay personally, of course, and then you know checking in what's going on with the company, uh, and that's all they can do. I can think of right now what we can do, but I'd love to hear what you guys are doing there in, in your world. Yeah, exactly the same. Uh, the guys in Indianapolis are working hard with their sponsorship uh, portfolio, as you say, checking in, making sure first and foremost that they're okay, but also coming up with ideas of you know how they can work with their partners to uh, aid uh, the front line. Uh, I know that some of the guys in, in the States are working with DHL to, to help uh, move stuff faster to um, frontline health services. Uh, they've also mm. come up with some initiatives, uh, some are driver focused. In England, uh, one of the Andretti drivers, Alexander Sims, has personally um, got involved with getting uh, stuff which racing teams would have, like masks and uh, other protective clothing and mm -hmm. delivering that to UK hospitals um, because there's been a shortage, it's improving but he's very cleverly harnessed the Motorsport Valley here in the UK and got supplies from all of those guys who've stepped forward uh, with very little persuasion to help the fight right. and I think we can communicate those stories to our sponsors to make them understand that we're not uh, sitting in an ivory tower remote from them, that we're, we're feeling the problems with them and, and, and helping as best we can do and creating some content uh, which is obviously uh, important that, that at this time um, but you know you never stop thinking about what opportunities this could bring post virus Mate. and my personal belief is that um, sponsorship could be a really good kickstarter for business development um, post COVID-19 mm -hmm. uh, and, and I mean that because Everyone is going to be in a different situation. The car manufacturers are going to be hungry for, for new business. There will be a lot of suppliers who will have been hurt by uh, COVID-19. 
Mm. And maybe there's a way in which all that could be put together to create um, uh, what I would call cost-neutral motorsport programs for car manufacturers. Right. And if you can do that, then your motorsport you know, will not get canned, uh, which it would do by a board if it, it's uh, eating into tens of millions of dollars. Mm. And you can keep a motorsport program going, uh, cost neutral, uh, keep suppliers happy uh, by getting them involved in the program. And in that way, I think you're going to kickstart the, the sponsorship market again. Right. Oh, I like it. I like it. Uh, I like the thinking there. I mean, we all know, uh, you know, it, the, the market will get hurt. Uh, you know, I remember 2008 and nine, um, how sponsorship dollars just disappeared, you know, uh, very, very quickly during that crisis. And I, I would somewhat unfortunately uh, assume that we'll have something similar happening this year and maybe even dragging into next year. So, um, yeah, it's all about being cl smart, clever, and, and of course, truly delivering a uh, uh, and a unique opportunity, which has business-related uh, opportunities for them, right? Where there is, uh, you know, potential rev maybe revenue, not just branding, of course, on the other Absolutely. side. Um, and those are those are the ones which will still succeed, and, and companies will still look at. Uh, it's going to be tough, that's for sure. Uh, at least that would be my my reading here. I, I agree, but I think um, if I can give an example, one of the partners that I bought into Formula E um, has. In, within eight months of signing that sponsorship agreement had done X5 times five the amount of business as uh, they were putting it in sponsorship. And that was after eight months. Wow. I love it. Yeah. And, and these are my, there's always my favorite stories when we can find, you know, when we help sponsors to obviously, you know, truly turn, uh, uh, bring revenue in, right? And if you can show that, that, that sponsor will be there forever, in theory, right? Uh, as long as uh, they keep seeing that benefit there. And that is the, ultimate, the ultimate win for both sides. Yep. But I think, Marcus, also, it, it makes us creative. And, you know, if you look back at some of the deals which, you know, you and I have looked on in, uh, upon and said, wow, that was smart. If you look back to the Target uh, deals in IndyCar where Target were not putting in one penny, but they were putting in, they were donating uh, premium shelf space. Uh, and in return, then suppliers uh, put money into the sponsorship program and got premium shelf space, which they then parlayed into uh, improved sales. That's yeah. the kind of creativity that we're going to need in the sponsorship in industry. And, and that's what we're going to see, in my opinion. Yeah. No, no. I love that. Great example. And I, I think that's sort of, is a is a great way also to uh, to wrap this up here. Um, now, when one question I earlier popped in my mind is, uh, and you might know an answer here, is when, what is currently a rough schedule when uh, Formula E is supposed to come back um, with the first race? Is there anything official out there yet? I have to admit, I can't quite recall seeing it. Well, the answer is that there is no schedule at the moment. Uh, okay. Plan A, B, C, all the way through to, to Z is being worked on at the moment. Right. Our thinking is that it might be possible to put together a schedule between July and September, right. uh, which would include some races in Asia and Europe, right. and to uh, finish off the, 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 the season six, as we call it, um, in this way. 
and we're, we're hopeful uh, of being able to, to, to put that together. Now, that may include running some races behind closed doors. And if you think of the Tempelhof uh, Arena in, in Berlin that we use for Formula E, mm-hmm. that could be something you could easily do behind closed doors. Right. Uh, and that, that if, if that's a way of running the race and getting it back on television and, and getting um, Formula E uh, back out into the public domain, then that's what we, we would do. Um, we'd obviously prefer it to be with fans there uh, and corporate guests, but that, that's another possibility. So I, I think at the moment, Mark, it's a little bit too early to say, uh, based on what's happening in Europe, but with a tentative target of, of July to September, but mm. the pre-writing condition, it has to be safe for everybody. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, I, and I think the concept of coming back out with no spectators, like Bundesliga has uh, made an announcement a few days ago, um, you know, I was talking to someone in WWE uh, earlier. Uh, they're actually still producing. And WWE just had their WrestleMania uh, in front, you know, which is one of their biggest events. I, I'm not sure if you follow this uh, crazy world of wrestling, but it's it's a you know client we did a lot of, used to do a lot of work yes. with, and and they hosted that event. And it was massive, but no one in the stadium, right? So. Uh, UFC is talking about renting an island, I think, somewhere and then trying to yeah. stage matches. So I think everyone is getting very creative here, uh, which is great. And I love that. Uh, and I think it is needed for sure. And I can't wait to finally see some uh, you know, action, sports action back on TV. Uh, hopefully we'll all see this very soon uh, because it's, you know, it's not just the entertainment it brings, but it's a large industry around it, right? It employs a lot of people. Um, and these companies and teams, and, and uh, whether it's in Formula One or you know esports, uh, sorry Formula E or or in football, they're all hurting, right? And and I think uh, we all need to get them back out there and playing what they do and uh, entertaining the masses, but also of course uh, you know surviving as a business. So I hope we will get there very soon. Uh, and Jim, I know you're going to be there bringing in the dollars there for them. Um, and I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, it's always been great uh, learning uh, from you. And uh, thank you for coming on the, on the podcast and wish you all the best there. It's been my pleasure, Marcus. Thank you very much indeed for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and uh, look forward to resuming sports and sports marketing as soon as we safely can. Absolutely. Same here. Have a good day. Dear. Thanks, Marcus. Best wishes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.